This episode may contain content some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day. How are you, Holly? Good. How are you, Corey? I'm good. I'm good. So, so today, from what I understand from both of us, today's a little bit of a true crimey type sort of day. Yes. Because um, we both have sort of true crimey things that happened on Valentine's Day in different time periods. Yes. And none of which have anything to do with Valentine's Day. It's just a coincidence. Yeah. Well, yours kind of does. Mine like is yours known was... specifically for being on Valentine's Day, but we'll get there. Yeah. So do we have any any business to attend to before we get going? I do not have any business. No business. No business? No business. All right. So you are first this week. So what are you going to tell me about, kid? I'm going to tell you about the Strasbourg Massacre. Oh, okay. Yes. So, on February 14th, 1349, several hundred Jews were publicly burnt in Strasbourg, France, which is would be the border of France and Germany today, while the rest of them were expelled from the city as part of the Black Death persecutions. What year? So, sorry, 1349. 1349. Okay. Um, so, starting in the spring of 1348, pogroms against the Jewish community started in Toulon, France, and by November they had spread to Savoy and via German-speaking territories. In January 1349, burning of the Jewish people in Basel and Friedberg took place, and by February 14th, the Jewish community of Strasbourg had been completely destroyed. The Jews were arrested and tried for poisoning the well systems, causing the Black Death. According to priest, priest historian Jacob Twinger von Kongstiffen, I'm sorry I butchered that, German is not my strong suit, quote, they burned the Jews on a wooden platform in their cemetery. There were about 2,000 of them. Those who wanted to baptize themselves were spared, and everything that was owed to the Jews was canceled. The t- council took the cash that the Jews possessed and divided it amongst the working men proportionately. The money was indeed the thing that killed the Jews. If they had been poor and if the feudal lords had not been in debt to them, they would not have been burnt, end quote. Approximately 200 other Jewish communities across Europe were also destroyed during these pogroms due to the mass panic. So... Leading up to the massacre, there was a heavy presence of anti-Semitism in the population. Religious and social resentments had been developing over the centuries, along with allegations of host desecration, blood libel, uh, deceited, and conspiracies of world domination. The Jews' roles were primarily moneylenders, which put them in an important position for the city's economy. However, they were said to be so arrogant that they were unwilling to grant anyone else precedence, and those who dealt with them could hardly make an agreement with them. They were often forced to pay high taxes, which was often in exchange for their protection against their debtors. Unlike the majority of the population, the council and the master's tradesmen remained 
committed to the policy of protecting the Jews and attempted to calm the people and prevent the pogrom. The Catholic clergy had advised had been advised by two papal bulls of Pope Clement VI the previous year to preach against anyone accusing the Jews of poisoning the well <clears throat> as, quote, seduced by the liar, the devil, end quote. Chronicles detail an overview of the process to overthrow the master artisans, and on February 9th, the artisans gathered in front of the chapel and informed the crowd that the masters would no longer be allowed to stay in office for they had too much power. The masters tried to get the guilds to disperse, but they realized they no longer had any support. The last thing the guilds demanded was the destruction of the Jews. Two of the major organizers of the coup were the Zorn and the Mullenhein families, who had previously been forced out of power. They represented the noble families and cooperated not only with the guilds, but also with Bishop Stradberg. The meeting at the chapel was to discuss, quote, the Jewish issue, end quote, and the methods to get rid of them. During the coup, the nobles regained a great deal of power, the guilds gained political power, and an anti-Semitic policy was thought to come into place. The demand to reduce powers of the masters was also granted during this time, and the former masters were punished by not being allowed to be elected during the next 10 years. Over the following three days, the council was dissolved and reconstituted, and the following day, the pogroms began. The council did not care about the contracts of the protection of the Jews, or the financial consequences to the city. Two leaders were tasked with gathering the Jews and bringing them to pl the place of their execution. They pretended to leave, lead the Jews out of Strasbourg and brought them to a wooden house where they were burned alive. Those who were willing to be baptized, as well as children and women who were found to be particularly attractive, were spared from this gruesome death. This massacre was said to last six days. In the aftermath, the murderers took the liberty of distributing the Jews' property amongst themselves. Many of the debtors used this opportunity to restore themselves, and many who promoted the overthrow of the masters were in debt to the Jews. The cash of the Jews was split between the artisans, which was decided by the council. This was thought to be kind of a reward for overthrowing the master tradesmen and was likely promised in advance, prompting them to kill many more Jews than what was anticipated. <laughs> chatty guinea pig very chatty guinea pig after distributing the properties amongst the citizenry they needed to ensure that they wouldn't be reclaimed by anyone else so Strasbourg created an alliance with the bishop at the time and the Austrian rural nobility they received assurance that the bishop and the nobles would support Strasbourg against anyone who wanted to hold them accountable for the murders of the Jews and seizing their assets Strasbourg also demanded that their allies take action against the Jews, and even tried to force them to. I'm assuming that they attempted to force, force them to by threatening to break their alliances. With these measures in place, Strasbourg was able to hold all of their Jewish assets. And in September of the same year, King Charles IV would pardon the city for both the murders and the thievery of the Jewish population. All of my sources are, of course, our friends Wikipedia and thejewishcurrents.org. That's overwhelming. It's very overwhelming. Um, they 
also planned on keeping the Jews completely out of Strasbourg. However, 20 years later, they were um, allowed to return. But yeah. So, so, so essentially, the Jews were used by the their debtors to get all of their money back and accused of poisoning the well system while the Black Plague was going on along and they were essentially a scapegoat right and the debtors and the noblemen saw this as a opportunity to release themselves from debts that they couldn't pay off because of the high i'm guessing what would be high interest Mm -hmm. that the jews had to charge because they were being charged such high taxes for being protected from their debtors that's wild do did did any of the sources say how many were killed? Uh, the Jewish current, well, yeah, the Jewish current said that there were in Strasbourg alone there were about two thousand of them, and that's mm-hmm. only counting the ones that were killed, not the ones that were exiled, and approximately two hundred other Jewish communities were also destroyed during these events. Um. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't give me an exact number, but right. um, in, and like, mm-hmm. in France, they actually refer to this massacre as the Valentine's Day Massacre. Oh, do they? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. The Black Plague was like, it was such a strange time mm-hmm. in history because of all the misinformation. Just technology wasn't up to where it was like it should have been. Well, yeah. So if you look at maps, there's a map that's been floating around of death tolls um -hmm. you know what i'm talking about and it's got like like a grayed out spots in certain areas saying that there were no death in those areas Mm, i'm not familiar with that one so you've got a couple areas that aren't affected by the black death this is uh, this again this map dates uh, 1353 um from oh okay yeah it's a vox article um oh and it's a gif ha ha so you'll notice three areas that are not affected by the end of uh, 1353. You've got the border of Spain and France. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got the area around Milan. And you've got what would be modern-day Poland. From what I understand, um, you've got the reason that Milan, I want to say that area on the border of um, France and Spain, is they close the borders of those cities. People was not people weren't coming in and out. Okay. Um, it was just a really low percentage, so whatever it didn't spread as quickly because no one was leaving the cities. So you said 1349. Mm-hmm. Starting in 48. Yeah. So if again, if you watch this this gif, um, it crawls out of uh, like Constantinople, um, up through Europe. So that's just when the border of France and Germany was starting to see deaths from the Black Plague. Yeah. So, you know, it became really easy to find a scapegoat. And we know now, it. I mean, obviously we know it wasn't the water poisoning wasn't poisoned or, or yeah. anything like that. It wasn't that specific people were dirty, let's put it that way. It's that hygiene in and of itself wasn't... Like, I think or, one of those little gray spots on the map is because people washed their hands there. Yeah. That might be what Poland was. <laughs> like there was just a different I'm I'm serious that I think I know. Just a different 
handling of, of hygiene. And I mean, I don't want to uh, minimize the loss. I mean, 2,000 people is not a lot in the grand scheme of things, but that's like wiping our high school off the map. Yep. Um, in a day. And like yep. that. Not only when they did this, they essentially sent the city into financial ruin. Well, yeah, because everyone who was responsible for the money was dead. dead. Or <laughs> so I just think that the fact that they had to, they felt the need they had to build alliances to justify what they did. But anytime and you the, see yeah. a, a mass extinction of a population of people, it's, it's framed like that. It's, yeah. They have to justify it. I mean, we just celebrated, not celebrated, but we just acknowledged um, World Holocaust Day not mm-hmm. that long ago. And there was a, I'm using finger quotes, reasoning behind it. They, they justified it as shallow as it was, but there always has to be a justification. Hell, now we've got migrants from Mexico and South America, and we're justifying I say we as the larger government, we're justifying how we're dealing with these people. Like there isn't a giant sign posted outside New York Harbor saying, bring us your poor, uh, tired masses. Mm -hmm. Not to get overly political, but indeed, guinea pig. (laughs) It's Doug. Hi, Doug. Doug the guinea pig is going to be joining us today. He's chatty. He is. Um. Yeah, before we started this episode, before I even texted Corey to be like, hey, let's do this thing, they were, I have two, um, they were at it today for some reason. So I'm like, I'm just going to separate this because one chatty guinea pig is better than hearing somebody screaming like they're getting <laughs> murdered. Please don't pee on me. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, the fact that it just happens to be on Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. Now, I know for a minute you were going to do like a history of Valentine's Day. Yes. When was do we remember when it was like established as a holiday? Um, hold on. I just I just looked up in Wikipedia. Fourteen ninety six CE. We don't really use AD anymore. Um, so. CE is current era, right? Current is common era. Yes, current okay. era, common era. On February 14th, 1929, seven members and associates of Chicago's Northside Gang were gunned down in a garage. 91 years later, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre is one of the organized crime world's biggest mysteries, right up there with the murder of Bugsy Siegel and the disappearance of union leader Jimmy Hoffa. So a lot of this information came from history.com, themobmuseum.org, allthatsinteresting.com, and Wikipedia. So it's important to understand the mobster culture of the 1920s. The United States was in the thick of the Prohibition era, which, by the 18th Constitutional Amendment, outlawed the production, transportation, importation, and sale of alcohol. From 1920 through 1933, bootlegging was the main source of income for most factions of organized crime, and the Chicago of the time was no exception. While opinions on the topics are mixed, some say prohibition bootlegging partnered with the violence of organized crime 
increased homicides by almost 13% in a study of 30 major U.S. cities. So prohibition, there was, I saw a picture somewhere that alcohol was a lot of times used as a, um, as medication. Yes. And it's actually kicking around, like, you wouldn't be able to get alcohol unless it was prescribed by a doctor. I saw, like, a doctor's prescription for whiskey on one of the sources, which is sort of wild. So Chicago crime was separated by the North and the South. The North Side gang was led by George Bugs Moran and was largely Irish-American, sort of European-American organization. Al Scarface Capone, yeah, that Al Capone, headed the Italian-American Chicago outfit in the South. The two were bitter rivals, stemming from an attempted hit on Capone in 1925 when he was Johnny Torrio's lieutenant. The two went back and forth for years, with few moments of peaks punctuating the shootings and bombings of other various businesses. So it was, hey, we're going to shoot up your house. Hey, we're going to bomb your racetrack. That sort of thing. Oh. Yeah, it went back and forth for literally years and years and years. Seven men were in the Lincoln Park area garage on the morning of February 14th. Brothers Peter and Frank Gusenberg were enforcers for Moran. Albert Kachalek was Moran's second-in-command. Adam Hare was the gang's business manager and bookkeeper. Reinhard Schwimmer was a horse racing gambler who quit his optician's practice to work with the gang. John May was a mechanic hired by Moran. Albert Weinshank managed several businesses as well. Also present was John May's dog, Highball. Four men entered the premises at approximately 10.30 a.m. following Weinshank in. And it's largely accepted that two were dressed as police officers and they declared a raid. Once the seven were lined up against the brick wall, the assassins fired. Members of Moran's gang stood no chance. Between the submachine guns, the shotguns, and a revolver, some men were virtually unrecognizable. When actual authorities arrived after, only Highball and Frank Gusenberg remained alive. Yay. When question- <laughs> well, the dog's okay. Well, when questions Ish. about the identi- identities of the assassins, Gusenberg would not give any details. He died three hours later. Highball, while physically unharmed, was said to have been so psychologically affected by the attack, he had to be euthanized by police later. Oh. Yeah. Poor baby. So Al Capone is the obvious surface-level suspect of this mystery. He and Bugs Moran, as I mentioned, had a really intense rivalry. This hit was simply the next step in their war. Moran himself may have been the main target. He was supposed to be at this meeting at the garage, but he slept in and was running about 10 minutes late. The killers mobilized only after Albert Weinshank, who bore a striking resemblance to Moran, stepped out of his car. Capone himself was vacationing in Florida. Both he and Moran claimed it was the other's style of handiwork. A known associate of Capone's, one Fred Burke, was involved in a minor traffic accident in Michigan several years later, and as a result, shot and killed one of the police officers who responded. When authorities raided Burke's home and car, they found a bulletproof vest, thousands of dollars in bank bonds stolen from a bank in Wisconsin, and a pair of Thompson submachine guns. Forensic ballistics, which was a new science at the time, connected these guns, which were also linked to the murder of mobster Frankie Yale in New York, to the St. Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago. What's interesting here is there's also the possibility of Moran himself being the orchestrator of the massacre, but there's less evidence for that. After all, Frank Gusenberg wouldn't implicate anyone. Could he be protecting the gang, his boss? 
Following the massacre, George Marion was effectively removed from the organized crime circuit, which left Capone and his successors to run the town. Capone was later arrested for tax evasion and in 1931 served 11 years between the Cook County Jail and Atlanta Federal Prison and Alcatraz. He was later diagnosed with advanced syphilis, which took a toll on his physical and mental health. And he died in his family's Florida home in 1947. He was 48 years old with the cognitive capabilities of a 12-year-old. At the end of the day, no one was charged with the murders of the seven men at the garage that morning. The garage itself was demolished in 1967, and the bloodstained and bullet-riddled bricks were either sold off as mobster memorabilia one by one or lost to time. 300 or so of these bricks have been reassembled at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas as tribute to one of the mob world's most enduring mysteries. That's fun. That's fun. That's fun. So it's just, I think, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, it's this infamous event in in mafia mobster history. Mm -hmm. And it's probably never going to be solved. Obviously, Frank Burke, or Fred Burke, rather, had something to do with it. Yeah. Now, whether it was a hit taken out by Capone, or whether he was working for somebody else, because he was essentially just a contract killer. We'll never know. Um, and the federal government and the FBI couldn't connect Capone directly. I mean, he was not physically there. He claimed nothing. And until his death claimed he knew nothing. Um, he didn't take credit for it. Yeah. And that was really common at the time. So the government had to get him on tax evasion and prohibition uh, charges yeah, because they couldn't get him on any sort of murder charges. Um, so again, widely accepted is that Al Capone was somehow the mastermind of all this. So whoever did this, it was a that as violent as it was and, and strange as it is to say, it was a really well executed hit. Yeah. Because there was no one left. You know, and Frank no Gusenberg, one left to, uh... and then Frank Gusenberg either couldn't say anything or wouldn't say anything. I keep looking for, and then I saw it once and I haven't seen it since what Frank's last words were. Um, but they're gone. I'm sure I'll find them eventually. Um, so yeah, nothing says I love you like murder. Lots and lots and lots of murder. Nothing but murder. Nothing but murder. 100% murder. All murder all the time. <laughs> that sounds so bad. <laughs> well, I mean. I mean. Somewhere on this planet of ours, whether it's human against human or animal against animal. Nothing says I love you like murder. Can I have that on a t-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So what are you guys doing for Valentine's Day? Are you guys doing anything? Um, Anything special? Actually, kind of, sort of. Oh, um, yeah? What are you doing today? Yes. Um, well, not only is it Valentine's Day, but today is the day that me and my husband first started dating six years ago. Ew. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Gross. But we used to, like, go out, get Chinese, and then just hang out and watch a movie. So that's what we're doing, because we oh, haven't done that lovely. in forever. Sounds like a lovely way to have so, a day. Yes. 
What are you doing today? Working. I mean, <laughs> I, I will also be at work at some point. I'm not planning anything, you know. Okay. Self-love? Self-love. Self-care. I might take a bath, like soap in a tub. Oh. Platonic love? Call one of the friends? Platonic love, yeah, I'll probably send Maddie a text. Madeline's I'll... my best friend. Um, so I'll probably, you know, give her some loving. Yeah. sounded weird. Um, <laughs> I will also be texting my best friend Mina um, at some point today because today isn't just about romantic love. It's about all love yeah. and murder, tell, apparently. Tell the people you love that you love them. Yes. Make it weird and if you can. Always make it weird. Make it as weird as humanly possible. Get the two weirdest inches from their face and just mouth it. Just, I love you, mouth. <laughs> Make it weird. Make it weird. Love is weird. Love is very weird. But, like, what is love if you can't accept everybody's weird? Like, the person you love's weirdness. Exactly. You know, that's what being a sister is about. Oh, yeah. We are weird as shit. Weird as all get out. Yeah, we are. And I love you anyway. Yay! I love you, too. Well, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day. We love you Day. guys. We love you all. Um, and all of your weirdness. All of your weirdness. Embrace it. So you, it. Can, you can always email us if you, there's something you think we need to know at sisterstrangepodcast at yahoo.com. Check us out on Instagram at sisterstrangepodcast. We are available on Spotify and anchor.fm. Coming soon to other platforms near you. And uh, we'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 <laughs>